Welcome to Rich Conversations. Historian David Rothmund, also known as Dr. Dave, returns to the show. This is his third appearance. Catch him on episodes 25 and 46 as well. Today we discuss his experience teaching university during COVID, his research as a historian, and the process that he takes, how he goes about assembling knowledge to write, and what he's working on right now. We talk World War II and his experience researching in Normandy. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy stories, he tells me. We even discuss his favorite book, Catcher in the Rye. Always interesting conversation with Dr. Dave, one of my favorite people to talk to. I always have an awesome time. So, let's begin. All right, welcome to Rich Conversations. Today, we have third-time guest, Dave Rothman. Dr. Dave. Very happy yeah. to be here. The last time we had him on, that was episode 40, 48, 46? Yeah, something like around that. Around yeah. there. And the recording setup was quite different. We, we were in my backyard smoking cigars <laughs> and drinking, uh, drinking some cobalt bourbon. So this time, we're actually at Lincoln Station and we got a much different video setup. We tried, I tried, uh, it was like the first time trying video on the podcast yeah. with you last time. Okay, great. Remember, we had like yeah. one tripod yeah. and uh, a DSLR, yep. and it, was sh- it shut off after like 10 minutes, and I'm like trying to figure this yeah. out. And uh, The production quality is much improved. <laughs> just, it's incredible how like in a year, you can just like, yeah. make yeah. these leaps and bounds, so. Uh, I'm really excited to have Dave here today, Dr. Dave. So much has happened, and uh, I'm so you're a professor at UIC. What what is the last year been like? Um, yeah, so there's like a, a lot of layers to that question. I think so. Um, crazy would probably be the one word answer, but um, more broadly, it's been super interesting to like identify the pros and cons of trying to teach through the pandemic right um so i get this question a lot of like how's teaching like how's online learning do you love it hate it what's happening i bet you hate that question i hate that question (laughs) because of this exact problem of there's just too much to say to people in like a short one-off like conversation right so um but we have all the time in the world now so let's go um what's been I'll start with the negatives and then we can end on a higher note. One of the like worst parts about teaching during the pandemic has been um, two things. First, I really enjoy being able to like be in a classroom and have that like physical connection with my students where I actually get to like see the um, like cogs start to like roll over and then yeah. start to like make these connections. Um, so that's like one of my favorite parts about being a teacher and I have lost a lot of that with online learning. A lot of students don't really feel super comfortable with like their cameras being on and Zoom calls. And um, I have students all over the world, so sometimes they miss classes, and um, that can be a little bit challenging. Yeah. The flips, um, the flip side of that is that we are challenging a lot of these long-standing pedagogical norms within. Ooh, that's a big word. Yeah, um, the ideas of teaching, right? How we teach, thinking about the way that teaching impacts our students and their lives. Um, so that has been radically altered throughout the pandemic before, especially with a lot of the older professors, they have a way that they've been doing this and they've been doing it for 40 years and they can't change their mind, but this forced them to change their mind on certain things. So we've seen a rise in technology, which helps students kind of grasp some of these more complex ideas. Um, and we've allowed students a little bit more flexibility in their own way of learning, right? So students can approach topics and research in ways that feel more organic to themselves because we aren't as focused on hitting deadlines because you have to have your paper in by class on Friday morning. So it's long, as long as you have it in, we can grade it. Uh, so that, that has been like a positive of it. The other negative of it is just physically seeing what it's done to the students, right? So college is an exciting time for like everyone. And you grow up, you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about what you're interested in, what your career might be, 
and I primarily teach freshmen and sophomores, that's a really, really important time period in a person's life. So I've seen these students miss out on that time, and that's been difficult as someone who like cares about their students yeah. to kind of watch. A teacher caring about their yeah, students. Yeah, I know, right? Good to Crazy. Um, but yeah, so I've seen some positives and negatives on both sides of it. Um, I get this question all the time, so it's just like so weird to try and conceptualize the, yeah. the way to answer it because I'm happy that students are able to approach these ideas in new ways. Mm -hmm. I wish I could physically be there to help them and like be in the classroom, teach them the material that I'm super passionate about and see them become passionate about it. So do you think it was also just difficult because it was all at once? There was no like, at the beginning of this academic year, over the summer, we're gonna train you to teach students how to learn online. It was, it was like, yeah, just like all at once, right? Yeah, and luckily, um, I've taught online classes before, so I had some background in it. This is still super crazy and different than anything I've done. Um, but just like the very base of teaching online, I at least had some background in. Yeah. Um, but even saying that, right? So the idea of recording the lectures rather than giving them live and then having students who are would have been in class but are now back home with their families in China, they can't watch the lecture live, so they watch it when they're awake, and then they email you, and I'm not awake then. Yeah. Uh, well, I am awake, but uh, I'm always awake. But you're always, you, you are, I feel like you're always awake. I'm always awake, you're but. Like, um, a mad genius. Yeah, it's horrifying. By <laughs> um, but then trying to respond to the students in a time frame that's appropriate and acceptable was difficult, and that was a really strange aspect of it all. Um, and that was different than the previous online teaching where, that I've done before, where students, yeah. they weren't in class, but they were largely all in the state or something like that. Um, now I have students in England, China, India, Mexico, here. It's just trying to coordinate um, a path to getting them the information in an appropriate time frame so that they can digest it is, that was the most challenging part for me. Yeah, so this is requiring you as a teacher to use all these other types of skills and logistics and communication and right. coordination. Yeah. Right, yeah. Wow. Um, and it's a, a lot of these skills are things I'm happy I picked up, and that's kind of what I was going with this idea of changing the way people have taught for a long periods of time. Um, a lot of these older professors are, they like teaching the way that they teach, but this has forced them to bring up like new ideas and, and new ways to approach classes. For example, some professors have a hard, I never use PowerPoint, I don't like visual aids, I just stand up and lecture. You can't do that anymore. So you need yeah. to have some visual aid for the students. <laughs> yeah, to yeah. Um, so it's forced a lot of these professors to go out and, and make some visual aid or, or bring some primary sources into the class for the students so that they can physically interact in their own way. And I think that that's just the positive overall. So even though there was a lot of struggle and I saw that struggle with my students and with the staff at the school, I think forcing people to reconsider the ways that they teach and the ways that they think about their own teaching as well as the department's teaching at large was like a huge benefit from this. Yeah. yeah. So moving forward, do you think there's gonna be like these hybrid learning scenarios or? Yeah, interestingly enough, this is super weird. Um, I'm actually teaching a hybrid class in the fall. So there will be half the students there, half of them don't have to be there. Um, I'll have in-person meetings, but then there's another professor who's doing more of the online side of things, but then I'm also kind of helping with the online side of things. So it's a mess. It's trying to figure out all these logistics, like you said, of just figuring it out. Um, so we'll know once we get there, but I think we're gonna see a lot more of these hybrid classes show up. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we, we were talking about how the world has changed with like labor, right? So work in general, and how so many places are now saying like, it's safe for you to come back, but just keep working from home. Like, just, you can just keep working, doing your thing. Um, in a lot of ways, I think we're going to see some of that in academia, where classes will trans it, like transition into this idea of 
you can enroll in a class or you could just stay wherever you are and enroll online class. Um, we have all these structures set in place because of COVID, so super easy and efficient. Um, and it's, we've proven over this last year that you still can teach online. So if students want to go that path, then they can. So it's almost like uh, it's catered even more to students of like, do you want your learning environment to be more remote and flexible or do you want it to be right. more? Wow. Right. Um, and going back to the point about like how important this time period is for students, I would hope that most students, especially if they're 18, they've never lived on their own, I would encourage them all to like go to school, live in a dorm, get an apartment somewhere, yeah. um, like grow up a little bit, you know, become the person, become the person you want to be, um, and like learn and make mistakes, fail a little bit here and there, yeah. and like grow from it. And I think that's super important. On that same note, I have students who are older than I am, and they're going back to school, and they have kids. And, yeah. Okay, for those people, they are an adult and they have children. They don't need to come to school at 10 in the morning for an hour class, if they can do it all online, they're just going to do it all online because they have other yeah. work and children and families. So uh, in those cases, I think that there was this idea that online learning was like lesser before COVID. And I think we've proven that the education can still be um, strong and good and like, beneficial for our students, even if it's online. So, And it can also be more accessible. Education can, can be, be more, more accessible to right. more people. Which is like an incredibly important part within academia at large, both from physically being in the classroom, but then I'm sure we'll get to it with like research and travel. Um, a lot of institutions don't have all like their collections digitized. And I found through COVID that there's been this like collaboration between schools to have students digitize what they can and in collections that you can't digitize it or can't work with material like physically, um, having someone from that campus reach out and like work with you and source exchange right so i'll take pictures of some stuff or scan some stuff at uic and then someone in berkeley will do the same and send them back to me and we'll yeah. trade it and any instance where you are making access to knowledge greater and wider um i think that's important yeah well on that note <laughs> something i'm super curious about is your upcoming summer here I know last summer uh, we were together a lot, and you were just kind of kind of bummed you weren't able to do your typical yeah. thing as a historian and going out and learning and researching. Yeah, and explain what your 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 summer schedule looks like. So it's a mess, um, like most things in my life, just kind of all messes, <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of little messes here and there, um, but it's a good mess. Um, so for this summer, you nailed it on the head. Last summer. I think everyone was just kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs waiting to figure out like what tomorrow's going to bring because it was just I feel like every day there was a new horrible thing we had to overcome and we're like oh god um but now things are starting to open up places are starting to open up again um so i leave on sunday for a research trip i'm going to be in charleston and then um athens georgia come back up for like four days and then i'm going to be up in wisconsin for some research and then i'm back here for like a week and a half, and then I'm gonna be at U of I, um, and then I'm back up here again, and I'm gonna try and rock out as much of the research in Chicago as I can this fall, because coming into the winter and spring, I'm gonna have to get to Boston, New York, DC, Berkeley, Minnesota, Texas, it's all over the place. Wait, 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 say that again? <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have to get to New York, Boston, DC, Berkeley, Berkeley and San Francisco, same, just across the bay. Um, I have to be in Austin, and then I have to be in Twin Cities. So I'm trying to get that stuff done within the this next... This is all the summer. So th this is all for the next year. Just this summer okay. is Charleston, Georgia, Wisconsin, uh, Urbana-Champaign, and Chicago. Hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, But those are the other ones on your radar yeah. that you need to check out. Yeah. So when you... When you take these trips, what what is that experience like? Like, what's your process? What, how do you travel? Um, it's crazy, and you, you have to be a certain type of person to be a historian because it's very, very isolating at all times. So you are going to these places and you're spending your entire day sitting in a quiet room with the sources, 
reading documents, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents, um, trying to scan what you like need, figure out what you don't need. And then you go home and you have to try and organize it and like rationalize how you're going to use it. And you're alone the entire time. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then you just go somewhere else and do it again. So the work weeks are 60, 70 hour work weeks, 80 hour work weeks of you just writing and reading by yourself in a quiet room, <laughs> which is very isolating. And then you come back and you have to like write about what the research was for committees and grants and money and everything like that. Um, so it's a lot of being able to put yourself into the mindset of like total grind mode. Of like I'm yeah. just, this is wake up to go to bed. I'm going to be working and reading and writing the entire time. Um, because you only have like a certain amount of time to do this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to be in, when I'm in Charleston, I have four collections I need to work through down there. And I'm going to be, I'm going to have access to the library for six days. So that's just, I have basically a day and a quarter for each collection, um, which is not a lot of time at all. Like very little time to be reading through hundreds and hundreds of papers. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> How fast can you read? Very fast. <laughs> really? but, yeah. So I read, you learn throughout school, like when you get to this level and you're just having to read so many books every single day, um, you pick up really quickly if something's important or not and your brain just starts to like cut out words that don't matter. So like... But ped pedagogical, pedagogical, <laughs> that, was, that was a word that was important to you. Uh, pedagogical. Ped pedagogical. Yeah, so I can read like a book, like a history, a couple hundred page history book in like an afternoon, no problem, a couple hours. Rock it out. Um, these collections, I'm skimming through pages, so it's like really, really quickly reading. Does this matter? Is this important? Do I need this? No. Flip it over. Yes. Scan it. Go on to the next one. Um, so I'll finish a collection. I can finish. It's hard to, to say exact sizes without it. Like uh, a few boxes of a collection, which is normally 10 folders full of papers. Wait, how are these organized? So they were. It, it's called like linear feet, which is basically the size of a collection box comes in like a one foot box, right? Is this like a like an evidence box? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Cop shows. And yeah, stuff? the the ones that like flip up and like yeah, yeah same exact thing. Um, and then inside those is like a bunch of folders, and it'll say. Normally, it's organized by like personal correspondence, select number of years, personal writings. Um, like published work, a anything that would correlate with the person's life. They try and organize it as best they can. So you have some idea of like what you're looking at before you even start looking at it. Okay. Um, and then it's just in these folders, there's just all the papers and the documents and the photos and everything. And you're just quickly going through that and trying to figure out what you need, um, which is exciting and I love it. That's like the detective part of being yeah. a historian. It's stressful in the sense of you're doing all of this research to write something, so you have an idea of what the end product should look like, but you haven't like written it yet. So you have to get to that point. And you, I always run into the problem of like, oh, did I skip something that was probably important or that I would want later, but I didn't think about yeah. it in the time? So it's just trying to be as thorough as possible, but also realizing that you have a time constraint and you have to get this stuff done because you can't go back yeah, to these places. Quite, yeah. um, there are quite yeah. some boundaries. Yeah. So how do you scan it then? Um, they, I like to use like uh, just an app on my phone. It's like a phone scanner thing. It's just easy. Just so there's like, an app that can scan these things. Yeah, um, it's very similar to like taking a photo of it. Um, you just like hold it over it and it just puts it on your phone like as a yeah. document. Um, I like to do it that way because then I can name the file on like a picture where I can't really name a picture. So I can specifically say like box one folder for this collection. This is what this this is what this like scan is um, and then that helps when I do my like footnotes later and I'm writing but a lot of people like to just physically scan with a scanner at the archive they'll let you do that or the some archives will just have you leave a note of what you want scanned and then they'll do it so they can make sure that they preserve it and that you're not like messing up any of the documents so so this, something I'm curious about is these scanners so you, you said you have the app mm -hmm. 
their scanners, I'm imagining like this big Xerox machine and they scan it like that. Yeah. I've seen some that are like wands. Like, is that a? I've never used any of those. Um, I do know what you're talking about. I've never used any of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the normal ones are just the Xerox ones. You just put it in, hit a button, does it. Why, why are more of these things already scanned in a digital way? So that's a good question, and I don't know if I have all the answers to it. I've asked this question a lot, and I think it's... Like, why do you need to travel to all these places when couldn't someone just go through... I mean, this would be a terrible job. <laughs> I, would, I would not want to do this. <laughs> But just scan everything and then just have yeah i mean a catalog or uh and that's that kind of ties back in with what i was saying before about like the accessibility of knowledge right that's yeah. great i think that that's where we should be heading and what we should want to do one takes up a ton of space on like computers and hard drives to have if you saw some of these archives and these collections i mean they could be a lot of the stuff that i'm working on is you know, disability history post world war ii um, specific people's papers or groups' papers, I'll top out at, you know, 10 boxes, 12 boxes of uh, research material. Some of these collections, if you're, I, one of the things I have to do when I go to New York is dig through some of the Socialist Party papers. I mean, that's hundreds of boxes. So if you scan at each individual piece of paper, I mean, you could be talking about 100,000 pieces of paper that you're scanning and then putting that onto, like, a computer and having like it be accessible it takes up space and memory and hard drive so I think that that's part of the complication of it and then I think the other complication with it and this is the more depressing side from my point of view is that there's this ivory tower like elitist feeling in academia where people like to think that because they have to do it this way it makes them more prestigious or more important and the that way of like having to physically go there yeah and then if anyone could go do it well, anyone can go to these places but if you could just do it from your home then it devalues the the work you're doing or the research you're doing i don't agree with that at all i think that's crazy but i do think that there within academia there is always going to be this like elitist ivory tower feeling um a lot of people that are my age and my peers were like pushing against that um but I think you definitely see it just with like a lot of the older generation trying to like gatekeep information, which is a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so what, are you, what are you researching? What are you, what are you coming across? What are you learning? Again, so many layers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my dissertation is on, simply put, post-World War II disability rights. I'm building off of similar, like, methods that have been used to identify long social movements in regards to like the civil rights movement and I'm just using that same framework for disability rights and trying to piece together most people argue that disability rights really shows up um, early 70s and then lasts until the passage of the ADA in 90, 1990. I'm saying that in order to like, fully understand this movement we can trace it back to the post-war era you can realistically trace back like even further if you want but I think that culturally right after World War II we have this influx of returning wounded veterans and we have new dialogues showing up about disability and like accessibility so I'm saying that through sports culture like left of center presses and then early activist movements we can better understand the long disability rights movement and create a more comprehensive understanding of this like post-war era, if that makes sense. It's a lot. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So why? So uh, I'm curious. You say post World War II and these soldiers coming mm -hmm. back that are wounded. Was this just not thought about before World War II that like oh, people served our country and like put their lives online and there's, they come back, was there anything done for them or was? Yeah, so there, there has been in the past, um, there's a lot of work done on like veterans after World War One coming home and there, 
it's almost always tied to labor, right? So it's these veterans come home and it's, oh, you served, okay, great. Um, can you still work? If you can still work, okay. great. And if you can't work, now there's these questions of like welfare in the state. And then that's when it starts to get like complicated. And um, that's why I think post-World War II, we see in, an increase in like this welfare state and the government actually <laughs> providing sort like resources for people. Yeah. Whereas following World War I, from everything that I've researched and worked with, it's almost always just tied to our, how can we like reinsert you back into the labor force to have some productivity out of you. Yeah. Um, so if you've lost your arm, can you still work on an assembly line in a Ford factory? Yeah. That's important. So, but then you also see the like society and technology going back from World War One to World War Two is much different. Much different, yeah. Yeah. And then it, the, so I, I say this post-war world. Veterans are a huge part of that. That's not like the only avenue in. I think that it's super important too to look at the way that our, our country has understood like blind and deaf communities, cognitive disability, um, physical disability, and then also like how the state interprets these wounded veterans. Yeah. And so it's all these different like paths and, and these groups all like think about disability and ability in like different ways. So it's like a complicated approach to a topic that everyone has their own interpretation of and their own view of, and that I'm trying to consolidate it down <laughs> into like a story that makes sense and is clear. Um, a lot of people are going to disagree with things that I say and approaches that I take. I'm trying to include all like the umbrella of really the way that the state interacts with these like grassroots movements and then how American culture and identity shapes this larger movement, if that makes sense. It, I'm excited to read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for it to be done. So, <laughs> so when does it come out? Um, uh, good question. Um, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, for like a year and a half, two years is my goal. Okay. Because I still have to do, like I said, a lot of this re research got postponed. I was able to do some of that um, like source exchange stuff with some people, but there's just too many collections. It's impossible to do that everywhere. Um, so I'm hoping to have all of the research totally done within a full calendar year from today kind of idea. Like that's my hope. And then I have a decent amount written already from what I could write without the sources. Um, a lot of the background, more of the background stuff. Once I interpret the sources, go through it, see if it's matching up with what my current like thesis and idea is of this. If it clicks together, then I'll put it in. It'll rock, rock it out, and then write it. And we should be looking at like a year and a half, two years. The hope. So, what does your writing process look like? You got all this research done. Now you just got to grind out this paper. Yeah. What does that look like? For you? Um, it looks like a. I look like a psychopath. <laughs> You'll, I'll have to send you a photo once you okay. see it because oh, I, um, I have my office and there's my desk with my computer on it, and then when I write like this, I there's a hundred, two hundred books just all over the floor, and then just stacks and stacks and stacks of paper from like that I've scanned or taken notes on, and it's just scattered across like pinned to the wall. I like. I don't know if you've ever seen the, like, the like, Charlie Kelly like crazy conspiracy uh, photo or whatever. It's, where he, there's just, and it's just like strings attached. <laughs> yeah, that's what my life looks like. <laughs> it, it's horrifying. Uh, I probably could be more organized. I know some of my peers were more organized. I I like that uh, controlled chaos. I like to write in controlled chaos. Okay, so you, you're going on these trips, and you when you're there. You're reading, and you're you're scanning these things. What about outside that? When you're driving, what are you listening to? We talked about this a little bit the other day. I think it's a great question. Most people, almost all of my peers, they like love podcasts and they love listening to like historical podcasts and political podcasts. I like to just put on my music and like deafen myself with it <laughs> as loud as I possibly can. And just like sing it to my heart's content, windows down, just yeah. driving 12 hours, whatever. And 
Um, yeah, that's like my happy place. I like to really just disconnect from the world a little bit and like listen to music and just kind of not think about work for a little bit. Like all the way turned up. Like full turn, throttle. Go to 11. Like we're, we're going for it. Um, my hearing's probably <laughs> bad because of this, but hey, you know what? Yeah. What, what, what are a couple bands you're listening to? Oh, it goes all over the place. <laughs> um, I love the Mountain Goats is my favorite band. Um, I really like folk punk, so like Days and Days and Mischief Brew are awesome. I think that they have this other paper that I'm working on that uh, it's called I Only Listen to Folk Punk. Yeah, if the idea of it is that my argument is that folk music and then today's version of folk music being like this folk punk approach uh-huh. um, embodies mo- most accurately embodies like America and Americana through music. So there's so many different genres that you could like label as like, oh yeah, th- this is what it means to be an American. There's so many people, a lot of people like identify country, a lot of people identify rap. It's like, this is emblematic of what our country like is. And I think that folk music has always been that and identifies the struggle of like living in capitalism, living and with like addictions and struggling and like honestly approaching like mental health and like depre- I think all of that shows up oftentimes in like folk music and folk punk. Rejections of like state oppression shows up in this music. And I think a lot of these ideas are what like laid a foundation for America as a whole. It, it embodies our yeah. country. So it's like real. So yeah, it's it like feels real. Um, so that's been my jam lately. But then I also love, like, 60s and 70s rock. So I'll just yeah. throw on, like, Led Zeppelin's discography and just listen to all of it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, something that's really interesting is sometimes I'll, I'll bring, um, bring nonfiction books around. Mm-hmm. And then I'll show it to Dr. Dave. And the first thing he does is just go to the back and look at all the, the like, citations yeah. and footnotes. yeah. Explain that. Um, So that's one of the skills that I learned in grad school was like before you read a book, right? So it it could take a while to get through like a a book, especially some of the books you bring out. They're thick. Um, I like to see if it's like worth reading based on where they did their research and how they approached their research. So I have a pretty decent idea of if you brought in a, a book about a certain topic, I have a pretty good idea of like 30 other books that can connect to this topic. And if I scroll to the back and this person hasn't cited like a single book that I think is foundational to this topic, then I question like, okay, would I read this? Should I read this? Um, and who, what are they trying to do with this? And what are they trying to do? Yeah. What, what's the goal of it? And it's not that it's always bad. Sometimes, especially coming from someone who reads like more dense academic histories um, if you have a more broad like public history that's fine and it has its like use and people enjoy that stuff Um, and I'm not like looking down on that at all I just think that that's my way of interpreting if I would read that book or if I think that they missed like you couldn't write this book without citing this other book so why didn't you do it and like where where is that gap now like why is that here um, so that's why I do that. And then it also just helps me understand, like, okay, what are they actually trying to say? Because I can see, like, oh, if in Chapter 2 you cited these 12 books, okay, I have a, a pretty decent grasp of what Chapter 2 is on. Like, I could pretty much tell you what Chapter 2 is on without ever having to read it kind of idea. But how do you know what books the citations are? Or like the... I read a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What... What's your reading process like when you're not researching? What, what do you do? Um, How do you go about reading books and selecting the books you read? Yeah, so I have like topics, broad topics, right? So I really like social movement history, I really like disability history, I really like World War II, I really like African American history. Um, so I'll do research just in like my free time of books that connect to these for both my work and then for my personal interest. And then I'll just like buy them or go to the library school or whatever and like rock through a couple of them and then and now I know. Just rock through. Yeah. Um, and now I know forever. So I just, now it's just in my head so I can just do 
go on to the next one kind of thing. Um, and that's been a huge part of like, history as an academic field is everyone always wants you to have like the historiography, so the, his the history of history. So if I were to say, oh, I I'm really interested in World War II. Mm -hmm. There's been thousands of books written on World War II. A historian would want you to like consolidate what's the most important 50, 100 books on World War II. Why, what are they saying, how is it different, what are their approaches, um, and then read all of those, and now how does that interpret the way that you think about World War II? So I do that with all of the topics that I just mentioned. I like think about what are the top you know, 50, 100, 200 books in this field, and then I'll read them, and then there's always new literature coming out. So I try and like separate my time into reading older texts I haven't read yet and keeping up with current scholarship, but like it's impossible to read every like everything published in a year. Like there's just too much. Um, so you have to try and piece out like what you think will help your own research and then what's just interesting to you. So I read like almost every day. If I'm not here I'm probably writing or reading somewhere. So where it comes to how many books a year for I like can't even count. It's a lot. Like it varies because depending on what my school schedule is like, sometimes my school schedule is more writing intensive and then I'm reading a little bit less. Um, and sometimes I read more. So I probably, in grad school, I've probably read like, in college I'll say, from like freshman year of undergrad till now, probably read like, 2,500 to 3,500 books. <laughs> oh man, I'm way behind. I, I probably, I realistically probably read like between two and 400 books a year. Okay. And I've been in school, I'm going into my... Yeah, so it's just like yeah. over one book a day. Yeah. 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 You mentioned uh, World War II a few weeks ago. We were, we were near each other and we were like, happy, happy D-Day Eve. Yeah, happy D-Day, yeah, yeah. Um, my ex-girlfriend used to always throw me a D-Day party on D-Day, because I'm a huge World War II buff. Um, so I've just, it's always, I now say happy D-Day Eve to people. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> crazy, D-Day crazy thing, insane thing. And you, you went over yeah. to where it happened. Yeah, so I, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was doing like a comparative paper on elite military forces and then like the way that they, both the US and German like elite troops interacted with like French citizens and like society and then also like how combat changed for these ideas of like being a new era of military, like military fighting, right? So um, I was following a lot of US troops, like just slightly to the right of like the Band of Brothers guys. It was like still 101st, 506, but Band of Brothers is about like the second battalion. I was doing most of my work with like the third battalion. Um, so it's just like a different group of guys, but they're basically fighting with the, the yeah. Band of Brothers guys. Um, and yeah, so I went over there with an author, Ian Gardner. He's written a few books, um, one of which I'm in, so that's fun. Nice. <laughs> I have a picture in it, it's great. Um, and we were just kind of walking through where some of these battles took place. Um, he had already written quite a few books before this about these battles, so I was picking his, his mind about some questions I had and some ways to approach some of these answers, hopefully. Um, and yeah, it was fascinating. It was, I found like a mortar in a field and picked it up and put it next to my face because I'm dumb. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just kind of walked through France and researched where I could, talked to people who were little kids when D-Day happened, and now they're you know, 80, and it's like, yeah. oh, crazy. Um, and then trying to do a lot of like on-the-ground research of like, okay, what did this battle look like and feel like and sound like, and like, where was everyone, and where was, like, how did this impact the cities and towns around this? Um, so it was fascinating. Interesting trip. Crazy trip. Imagine, I, I would imagine it's probably one of the most memorable things. One of the most, yeah, it, one of the greatest experiences in my entire life. Like, I can't even, it's hard for me to talk about it because so much happened. Yeah. It was so overwhelming to, like, be there, especially, like, when I grew up, when I was a little kid. Um, 
I used to just go to the library when I was like five and six years old. Went, but like before I could read well at all, I just read kids' books. But I would ch- go to the back, as the back right of the library. They had all the war books. So I'd just sit in the World War II section and like pull out all the books and try and read what I could, but just like look at all the pictures and like put books on top of books to try and like see if the pictures could match up ever. And like I just tried to make sense of it. So it was something that my entire life I had been like reading about World War II, looking at pictures of World War II. And now I'm there, and I'm like standing in the spot that I saw in these books like 20 years ago, and I'm like, this is shocking, like staggering, um, and overwhelming, but incredible. Yeah. So what what do you know of what was going on the night before D-Day? What uh, was going through the soldiers' mind? What was happening? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of veterans about it, and interestingly, like. They all, t- it's hard because a lot of them are gone now. So there's a lot of stories. I'm sure everyone has their own individual approach to like what happened that night before. But the, the people that I've talked to have said they were definitely anxious and for, not nervous, but like you, you have those nerves just running through your head. Ex- like almost excited nerves. Like, okay, are we going to do it? Are we going to do it? Um, but at the end of the day, just like trust that you're ready. And that's what they all said. It's like, we all, none of us were that nervous the night before because we felt ready and trusted the next guy. Like everyone around us felt like we trusted everyone. So um, there will always be nerves when you're about to jump out of an airplane in 1944 <laughs> uh, into German occupied France. Sure, everyone is a little scared to some point. <laughs> Um, none of these guys will admit to me that they're scared. They're all like, oh, I wasn't scared. I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. I would have been scared shitless, so like, yeah. Um, but yeah, they all say, like, the biggest thing that they say is that they were just ready, they felt ready, and they trusted everyone around them, so there wasn't, like, that concern. It was never running through their mind. They just wanted to do it. They were, like, wanted to get it done. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Insane. So let's, so let's go in a different direction. And talk about your favorite book. Yeah, definitely. Catcher in the Rye. Look at this. Why, why is this your favorite book? And this is, he told me, he's got two tattoos of quotes. Uh, one is a recent one. What does yeah. that say? It's history, it's poetry. And then this one is, don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. So, and how many copies of this book do you have? Way too many. Like it's 20, like 28. Yeah, 27, 28. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, different editions, different covers. Yeah. Just like every bookstore I go into, I try and see if there's one that I don't have, kind of thing. It's a little obsessive. But yeah, I got, you know, for like, I think, so you told me to reread it. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I borrowed it from the library. And then when I was in New York, I got this copy because it was like, oh, it takes place in New York. Yeah. I'm gonna get it here. Um, but then you also turned me on to estate sales, yeah, and and just like more thrift stores. So then I just I just find copies of Catcher in the Rye yeah. like everywhere I go. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And so that's hilarious because that's kind of the um, you asked like, you know, why is it my favorite book? Why do I love it so much? Um, Part of that reason is when I read it for the first time, I was in high school, really resonated with me. I really loved it then. Like, fell in love with the character of Holden, fell in love with, the, with Salinger's writing style. But so many people I knew hated it. And they hated it because they were forced to read it over the summer for school. And so no one cared. And they all just like, read it as quick as they could and tried to answer whatever quizzes or dumb questions the teacher gave them. And then they threw it in the corner and never picked it up again. And that like broke my heart because I think it's such an important book and I think there's so much to be said about it and so many people just say like oh I hate Holden because he's whiny or he complains a lot um, but then they like don't I was, I was in that camp. yeah <laughs> and, and, and that's why I told you to reread it um, and so I'm interested to like hear more of your opinions as you've digested it over time even more so than what we've talked about in the past um, because I think that well y- when you read it in high school, you're close to Holden's age, you can resonate with him mm. at the time, but I think the, the real like power of the book comes from reading it in your 20s and your 30s, mm. and looking back and thinking about like, oh, I was that kid. Like, 
and I feel those things, and I felt those things, and he's not whiny, he's just right and being honest. And, like, if you're honest with yourself about, like, the world and your interpretations, like, things suck sometimes. And, like, that's a lot of the book is, like, having a kid have to understand why the world sucks a lot of the time and, like, piece that together and be alone in New York piecing these, like, huge things together and, like, trying to understand his life and, like, death and other people. Um, and it's, like, difficult. And I think we all go through a lot of that. And I think we all have a sense of, like, that loss of innocence in our lives. Um, and as we get older, we want to protect what little innocence we find places because we see, like, the damage that the world can push on to people and, like, our loved ones and ourselves. So I think that the idea of Holden having lost that innocence when he was so young but wanting to like protect kids from the world is something that a lot of people feel especially when you start to like have families and children and are like growing up you don't want the people that you love and care about to have to like suffer even though suffering is a part of what makes us us right so um but no one talks about that when you're 14 or 15 in high school. They just talk about like, oh, Holden's annoying, and that's it. And then they throw the book away. And I'm like, well, you should reread the book now. Like, you, you've grown up since then. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you, you had mentioned to reread it because I told you at one point about the Field Museum here mm-hmm. in Chicago. And every time I go there, I'm in this room full of fossils, and there's this window that looks out to the skyline of the city mm-hmm. and this juxtaposition where like everything here is is dead and it reminds me of my mortality and, and how life is so fragile and at the same time I look out the window and it's like I'm reminded that I have to like rush everything and mm-hmm. I have to be productive and I have to do all do all of that and you're like oh man you gotta, you gotta reread this because every time I go to the field museum everything's exactly the same the same. Every every single time I go there, yeah. all these displays, the smells, the colors, it's all the same every time. And, yeah. and in the world that is ever-changing and, and going quicker and quicker and quicker, I just love that that slow pace. Yeah. So I decided to reread it, because in high school I hated Holden. I'm like, why are we reading? What is the value of reading a character like this. Yeah. Like he's doing everything wrong, he's a loser, blah yeah. blah blah. Um so I reread it and there hasn't been another book that made me drift off and think about life more than this book. Yeah. Like not drift off like I'm bored, but like makes me think about my life in a way. And yeah. it reminded me this is something I don't, this is something I'm revealing for the first time. I reveal it to you before, but I haven't told anybody, but like, I lived homeless, and for a month, I just slept on the streets mm-hmm. here in Chicago, in the parks and yep. bushes, sneaking into buildings, and the writing, and the, the book reminded me of that experience, yeah. and the journal I kept at that time, I never, never really shared it, because it's just me going around, Right. Thinking about life and right. exploring like nature and just observing the world around me. And there are a few habits that I picked up living homeless and one is like coffee, so here we are, <laughs> coffee. And the other one is observing the world mm-hmm. like in this just like this curiosity. What people don't talk about with homelessness is often it's very boring. Right. Just sitting around waiting waiting to get in at this place at a certain time, or um, you're waiting for these resources to come through and this phone call and blah, blah, blah. So you have to entertain yourself. And so you do it with either conversation with other people or you just like look around. (laughs) Right, yeah. And so there's this, and ever since, it's like stuck with me, but I, I never really told people about that habit that I picked up. Yeah. And there's this like guilt because now when you're in the world, you're supposed to be productive. You're supposed to be doing this, be on your computer. And right. there are just like so many days where I just I just go on walks and yep. or I go yep. to the museums and I just think 
and observe the world. Yeah. And until I reread this book, I always felt guilty about it. And then when I read it, it just completely flips, and I realized that that is actually an asset. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yes, this is great. Yeah. I mean, I love that you. I love that you. Um, you literally do what Holden does in the book, yeah. where I go into the museum for the same reason as him of yeah. nothing changes. It's it's a safe place where it's like quiet and the fossil is not going to change. It's still going to be the fossil. Like right. that's not moving or anything like that. Um, and like you now go to like you go to these museums, and I don't think you know high school rich would have ever imagined that. You know, Twenty years later, you're doing the same exact thing that Holden's doing. Yeah. Um, and it's one of your like favorite pastimes and like ways for you to kind of yeah. relax and decompress a little bit. So I think everyone should like reread the book for a lot of reasons. And I'm happy that it resonated with you in a way, because I think there's a lot to talk about with it and a lot to take from it. Um, and I just wish more people gave it a chance and just You don't have to get a tattoo. <laughs> you don't have to get the tattoo. <laughs> but you should at least give it give it another chance. Yeah. And my advice to everyone when they read it is don't hate Holden, because it's not his fault. He's a byproduct of like a world that we all live in and we all share. And we all have these feelings, whether you want to admit it or not, we've all had a lot of the same ideas and thoughts that Holden has in the book. Um, just take a second, and it's a quick read. It's, it's written in a way where you can rock through it like real quick. Um, and just give it a chance, like to go into it open-minded and don't think about like having to read it for an assignment. Don't think about any of that. Just like try and reconnect with Holden and with the place that he's in and the, in New York at that time and everything. And um, I think you'll gain a better understanding of like the book and why it was written, but then also like a better understanding of yourself as a human being, yeah. which is why it's my favorite book. It opened up my eyes to like the world and to who I actually am and helped me like articulate that. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, on that note, why don't we uh, wrap up here? Any, any last words of wisdom as a, as a historian and as a researcher and a reader? And... Um, I wish I had more <laughs> to say on that note. It's tough because it's like, I. you had mentioned it way earlier, how I'm just like a, almost a mad scientist. Like, and that's how I feel. I can't, yeah. I can't make sense of words in my head anymore. Like everything's just a jumble mess. So, um, yeah, give Catcher in the Rye a chance and don't stop reading and just keep. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you coming on again. Yeah, thank you for having me. It means a lot. I'm happy to be here. So, yeah. always down to talk. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Continue to seek knowledge and learn more than you do now.